to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Jedediah, Jedediah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And so uh, last week we, we saw that this was a word from the Lord that came to Zephaniah, and as the word of the Lord, it's word that's breathed out by God, so it's useful for doctrine, it's useful for reproof and uh, correction and training in righteousness that we might be uh, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we saw that it's a very God-glorifying book, teaching us about God's righteous character and a coming day when God will bring about perfect justice and mercy. And, and mercy. Um, we saw that the, the book called the people to turn from their uh, sinful ways and to seek the Lord, uh, that they might be hidden on the day of His wrath. And so it's a book that calls people to walk by faith in God. And today we look a little bit at the man. Uh, we actually don't know anything about Zephaniah except for what is included Look, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the, in the Scripture. Uh, and so we only know what he uh, has chosen to tell us or what is told to us in the superscription. But we do know his name. His name is uh, Zephaniah, which means Yahweh has hidden. Uh, you know, you read the, the, that, the first verse, and it, 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 these words kind of rhyme. Uh, Zephaniah, uh, with the exception of Cushai, but then Gedaliah. Amariah, Hezekiah, and so they all end with this uh, uh, suffix Yah, which is part of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, and so uh, talk a little bit about, about this as we go along, but uh, Zephaniah means Yahweh hides, Yahweh has hidden, and he actually uh, makes a play on his own name. In uh, chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, you, have uphold his, you who have upheld His justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so uh, uh, Yahweh was hidden. And it's likely that Zephaniah was born during the reign of Manasseh. Uh, Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings in all of the history of Judah. Uh, you know, most of the kings uh, weren't good. There were a few good kings in Judah. Judah uh, was different than Israel. Uh, Judah maintained a son of David on the throne all the time, uh, while Israel rebelled against the line of David and placed Rehoboam. And then in, in the northern kingdom, the northern tribes, the tribes of Israel, uh, you know, the king would, would become king by assassination or by political intrigue or by uh, military might. Uh, there was a, a couple of dynasties, I think up to four generations in Israel, but none of those kings in Israel, the northern tribes, were descendants of David, and they were all evil. They were all wicked. None of them led the people in righteousness and truth. All of them continued the worship practices that were started by Jeroboam, uh, who set up the golden calves at Bethel and Dan and instituted a non-Levitical priesthood and different festivals, different religious days. Uh, the kingdom of Israel had no good kings that led the people in accordance with the law of God. Judah had a couple, but for the most part, 
they really will talk about two of the good kings uh, this verse. Two of them are mentioned. Uh, but uh, uh, Manasseh was probably the most evil, the most wicked of all the kings of Judah. And it also, by God's providence, he reigned the longest. He was actually king for 55 years. And uh, the, the book of Kings tells us about Manasseh, that uh, uh, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. In 2 Kings chapter 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. And so uh, Zephaniah's parents named him the Lord is hidden. And perhaps it was their prayer that God would protect their baby boy from the murderous king uh, that was filling Jerusalem with innocent blood. Um, and so perhaps it was the prayer of Zephaniah's parents that he be hidden from the murderous rage of the king of Judah. Um, and uh, as we see, Zephaniah uses that as a part of his preaching, um, calling the people to seek the Lord, uh, to seek righteousness and truth, to come humbly before the Lord, and they might be hidden in the day of the Lord's wrath. And so that's his name. Yahweh has hidden. Yahweh hides Zephaniah. We also, uh, he also gives us his genealogy. Now, it, it's interesting, you know, many of the prophets give us their father's name. Most of the prophets, most of the minor prophets give us one generation of genealogy. They tell us their father's name in order to distinguish them from people by the same name. You know, uh, uh, we, we, we have common first names and then our last name kind of distinguishes us from other people named Mark. And so uh, uh, a lot of times the prophets would say the word of the Lord came to uh, this person, the son of this person. But Zephaniah gives, actually gives us five generations. And the first generation that he gives us, uh, who, was, uh, who was Zephaniah's, what was Zephaniah's father's name? Cushai. All right, well, the only name in that, in that uh, genealogy that does not contain the name Yah. And actually, Cushai... Other places in the Bible is translated Cushite. What does that mean? That is one, one who comes from the land of Cush. Where is Cush? Yes. Actually, Ethiopia. Cushite, uh, Cush is modern day Ethiopia. What do you know about people who come from Ethiopia? They are dark-skinned people. That's right. The Kush, you know, Kush, Kush. Uh, 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 the word Kushite is used to describe a person from the land of Kush, the land of Ethiopia, which this was the center of Black Africa in that day. This could indicate that Zephaniah comes from a multi-ethnic background. Um, from the book of Isaiah, we see that Cush was a powerful ally of Judah. Cush and Judah entered into some alliances kind of to balance the power against Egypt. Uh, and uh, we, see, we will see in a minute that uh, Zephaniah was from the royal family. His great, 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 I'm not sure how many greats, but... Uh, uh, 
Hezekiah is in there. <laughs> All right, Hezekiah is in his genealogy. Maybe great, great, great grandfather. Is that the right number? Um, and so, so it was very common in those days for people in the royal family to marry from the royal family of nations in which there was an alliance. And so it's very possible that uh, uh, Zephaniah's grandfather, Jedaliah, married a woman from Cush as a part of political alliance since he was from the royal family. And it's possible that they named their son Cushai, who would be Zephaniah's father. Not conclusive, but uh, the other, other times that word is used in the scripture, it's translated Cushite, uh, referring to uh, someone from the center of black Africa in that day. And, and certainly Zephaniah's theme is that God's grace will ultimately extend to all people. All nations will be ultimately restored to God during the coming day of the Lord that the kingdom of God will consist of people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. And so uh, uh, his father's name was Cushai, perhaps indicating that Zephaniah came from a multi-ethnic background, that his grandmother was a Cushite, perhaps. Uh, and like many of the prophets, Zephaniah gives us some genealogy, but he gives us five generations. Why do you think he goes back five generations? When you read through that, why does he go back so far? To show us that he is a descendant of Hezekiah, exactly. Um, he probably wants us to know that he is the great, great grandson, two greats, great, great grandson of Hezekiah. Uh, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah characterized as a good king or a bad king? Good king, that's right. Probably, uh, other than David, the best of the kings. Uh, so, so Zephaniah is uh, a member of the royal family. And so as a member of the royal family, he is certainly a person of some status, some person of position, probably being a part of the royal family. He's aware of the international situation and, and, and the practices of the religious and political leadership of Jerusalem and Judah. And in fact, he's going to call out the princes in his, in his, uh, in his letter. Um, and since he's a descendant of Hezekiah, he's also a descendant of David and uh, becomes an example of God preserving a faithful remnant from the line of David, even in an age of darkness. During, born during the reign of Manasseh, who would be the son of Hezekiah, and yet he was the most evil, the most wicked of all of the kings in Judah. Uh, the son of Hezekiah, who, other than David, was characterized as the best king of Judah. And, uh, and we see his family's desire uh, to express their faith, including the covenant name of God and the personal names of their children. Hezekiah means Yahweh has strengthened. Uh, Amariah means Yahweh has spoken. Jedaliah means Yahweh is great. And Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden. 
And so in the naming of their children, his family shows a desire for loyalty to God and a trust in his covenant promises. God is preserving a remnant for himself even in the midst of darkness, even in uh, the dark, wicked days of Manasseh, the king of Judah. All right, so that's his genealogy. He is the great-great-grandson of Hezekiah. And he comes from a line of people who are are reaffirming the covenant promises of God using his covenant name in the naming of their children. Um, And when did Zephaniah minister the word of the Lord? What are his times? In the days of Josiah. All right, so Josiah was the king. And Josiah was Hezekiah's great-grandson. And uh, he took the throne at the age of eight. After the assassination, the assassination murder of his wicked father, Ammon. And so Hezekiah was king. Hezekiah died and Manasseh became king. He was king for 55 years. And then uh, his son Ammon became king. And Ammon was king a very short time. Let's see. Uh, He reigned in Jerusalem two years. And then his servants, the people in his household, rose up against him and assassinated him. They killed him, and Josiah became king when he was eight years old, uh, after his father was murdered. All right, so this helps us understand the historical background of Zephaniah's preaching. Uh, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten northern tribes had been taken into exile. The Assyrians were exercising dominion over the northern part, you know, just north where, where Israel used to be in Samaria and to the east. Uh, and uh, uh, the ten northern tribes had been taken into Israel. Assyria, Assyria controlled that territory to the immediate north of, of, uh, of uh, Judah. And Judah was paying heavy taxes, heavy tribute to Assyria uh, in order to live. Basically, they were buying the Assyrians off, paying taxes, uh, paying a heavy percentage of their produce to uh, the Assyrians to keep them from conquering them. Even during the reign of Josiah, this was going on. And so, uh, and yet Assyria was beginning to decline, uh, beginning the decline that would eventually lead to their destruction that we talked about when we looked at Nahum. Uh, and Babylon was growing in power. So Babylon to the east is growing in power. Assyria in the north in the east is, is in charge but declining in power. And Assyria is allying itself with Egypt to the west of Judah. Uh, so the Assyrians and the Egyptians are coming together to counter the power, to balance the power of Babylon, which is raising in the east. And so all this is going on. Judah is kind of sitting in the middle of this great chess match, determining who's going to be in charge of the world. you got Babylon here, Assyria and Egypt here, and Judah's kind of right in the middle. Uh, loyal to Assyria, paying them off just uh, for, the, for the right of existing. And so, uh, so that's the political situation. 
Babylon, the Assyrians, the Egyptians are all battling for control of the area. And Hezekiah, uh, Zephaniah's great-great-grandfather, Josiah's great-grandfather, had been uh, one of the few good kings of Judah. In fact, 2 Kings 18 says of Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, he prospered everywhere he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So Hezekiah stopped paying those tributes, stopped paying taxes to the Assyrians, and the result was the Assyrians invaded Judah. And they came and uh, uh, actually laid siege. They defeated most of the fortified cities of Judah and laid siege to Jerusalem during the reign of Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather. And Hezekiah, because of the prophecy, the word of the Lord that came to him through Isaiah, cried out to the Lord. And the Lord gave a great victory, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord, went out and slew 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers that had laid siege to Jerusalem. The king of Assyria packed up his, his survivors and went back to Nineveh, and, uh, and Nineveh declined in power before it uh, uh, rose again. Uh, during the reign you know, of Manasseh and leading to the reign of Ju J uh, Josiah. And so Hezekiah, a great king, good king, other than David, the best that, Israel, that Judah ever had, uh, largely due to the prophetic ministry of Isaiah, uh, calling him to, uh, to trust in the Lord. And so Hezekiah was a good king. And then Hezekiah died, and his son was... Manasseh. Hezekiah was the best king. Manasseh was the worst king. And uh, uh, Manasseh reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. And he rebuilt the pagan places of worship that his father Hezekiah had destroyed on the high places. Uh, not only did he restore the pagan, pagan places of worship on the high places. And you remember the, uh, the high places were kind of localized places of worship. God had said that he would be worshipped in Jerusalem alone. That's where his temple was. That's where people would go and make sacrifices and worship. Uh, but it was more convenient to go to the local high place where the pagan shrine was, and they would combine the worship of God, Yahweh, with the worship of the pagan gods at the high places, the convenient places of worship, instead of making the trip all the way to Jerusalem, they would go to the high places. Hezekiah tore those down. Manasseh rebuilt them. Manasseh rebuilt the, the, the high places, the local convenient pagan places of worship where the people sought to combine the worship of Yahweh with the pagan local deity. And so Manasseh restored all that. Not only that, not only did Manasseh rebuild the pagan places of worship on the local high places, but he actually erected pagan altars in the courtyard of the temple, the house of God, the house of the Lord. He put pagan altars right there in the courtyard of the temple, in the, in the, uh, the sanctuary, the holy place that God had put his, his, uh, his name. He put pagan altars right there in the temple of the Lord. And not only that, he offered his own son, as a sacrifice to the pagan gods. He practiced soothsaying, witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums. And as we already read, he shed much innocent blood, filling Jerusalem 
from one end to the other with innocent blood. Manasseh was a terrible king. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord and did much to provoke the Lord to anger. The most evil king with the longest reign, and it was likely during this dark time that Zephaniah was born. And so uh, uh, Hezekiah, followed by Manasseh, 55 years, and then Manasseh died, and he was followed by Ammon. And Ammon followed right in the steps of his father Manasseh, uh, but his own servants conspired against him and assassinated him. So Josiah became king when he was eight years old, after the murder of his father. And both Zephaniah and Jeremiah preached during the reign of Josiah. Uh, So we kind of talked about Micah. Uh, being at the same time as Isaiah, well, little old Zephaniah is at the same time as Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah gets to write 50-something chapters, Zephaniah writes three. And so uh, we call Jeremiah a major prophet, Zephaniah a minor prophet. They preached at the same time. Jeremiah had a lot more to say than Zephaniah did. But Zephaniah was nevertheless important. Because in the eighth year of Josiah's reign, so he would have been... 16 years old. He became king when he was eight. In the eighth year of his reign, the, the author of Chronicles tell us that Josiah began to seek the Lord. He began to seek the Lord, call upon the Lord when he was 18 years old. And then in the 18th, I mean 16 years old, and then in the 18th year of his reign, he began to make renovations to the temple. So he would have been 8 plus 18, 26. 26 years old. At the age of 16, he began to call upon the Lord. At the age of 26, he determined that the temple had fallen into a state of disrepair, that it was uh, uh, time to, to, to restore the temple to its glory, to its beauty, uh, to a building that would be worthy of the worship and, the, and reflecting the glory of God. So he sent people to begin to renovate the temple, to, uh, to cleanse it, to clean it after the 55 years of Manasseh and the two years of Ammon that had desecrated the temple. And while they were cleaning the temple, what did they find? Yeah, they find a copy of the law, the law of God. So, you know, how long had the people of God been trying to worship God without the law of God? Uh, You know, probably at least uh, 57 plus 26 years, 75 years. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they had it during the time of Hezekiah and during the reign of Manasseh, it kind of got lost because they erected these pagan temples, those pagan altars in the temple. And so here the people are attempting to worship God without His law. And so during the renovation, they found the law of God and they brought it to Josiah and uh, they read, began to read the law. And most probably, this was either the the whole Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or it could just be the book of Deuteronomy, which would be a summary of the law. Uh, Scholars are uncertain. But they found the book of the law of God. They began to read it to Josiah. And as they began to to read what God required, and as they read what God promised if the people did not do what God required, Josiah tore his clothes in repentance and in grief and announced a, a, a renewal, a, a revival 
Josiah led a great reform, restoring the worship of God, uh, renewing the festivals, and destroying the places of pagan worship that his grandfather and his father had rebuilt. And so, uh, uh, so, so this is the time that Zephaniah preached during a time of, of renewal and, and reform and revival. Uh, and it's likely that Zephaniah begins his message before the renewal. Uh, chapter 1 seems to describe the first 25 years of Josiah's reign. Uh, and then he does demonstrate a great knowledge of Deuteronomy. There's some parallels between the book of Zephaniah and Deuteronomy that we'll probably talk about as we go through. And so, and so it's likely that Zephaniah's preaching kind of uh, brackets that revival. And perhaps it's the preaching of Jeremiah and Zephaniah that motivated Josiah to begin the renovations of the temple to discover the law of God and to bring the reform and the revival and the restoration. They observed the Passover in such a way that it had never been observed since the time of the judges. You know, so, uh, so discovering the law of God, they began to bring their worship into line with the law of God. And so uh, Zephaniah probably began to preach before the reforms uh, because he describes the false worship, but he also shows a great knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy. And so, uh, so that's when Zephaniah preached. And as we think about that, we think about the days of Josiah, we have to ask ourselves, how long? How long had the people of God been involved in worship that wasn't centered on the Word of God, that wasn't based on the Word of God? The Word of God had been lost. And yet they were continuing to worship, but their worship wasn't directed by, based on what the Word of God said. Uh, they were the covenant people of God. They were worshiping in His temple, but the Bible was lost. And so there's probably, you know, they were probably relying on, on two things. If you don't have the Bible, what are you probably relying on in your worship? Yeah, well, it was passed down. So the traditions that have come down from, from your elders, you know, so the, the traditions, the habits that the people had, and, you know, and probably some of those were, were you know, were, were valid, but... But every generation, you know, there's probably a little bit of corruption. If you don't have the, the, the standard of the Word of God to evaluate everything that you do, you know, from generation to generation, you probably keep some of those practices, you discard others, and you might pick up other practices. Where, where might the other practices come from? So there's some that are passed down by habit or tradition. Where, where might other practices of worship come in? From your neighbors, that's right, from the culture, from the pagans around you. So they were combining their traditions and the habits of their, that had been passed down, the oral tradition, uh, and they're also combining that with the pagan worship. That's what Manasseh offered his son as a sacrifice to a pagan god. They were worshiping the high places. And so, so your neighbors, the culture, would uh, be introduced into that. And so likely they were, you know, they were, they were governed by their habits, their traditions that had been passed down, and uh, they'd also incorporated the worship practices of their neighbors. And so when we think about the days of Josiah, uh, we need to remind ourselves that our worship should be 
directed by the Word of God. We need to commit to order our worship by the Bible. God tells us what, how He must be worshipped. And we here at Community of Grace, we need to commit to order our worship, all that we believe, all that we practice by the standard of the Word of God. May the Word of God never get lost at, at uh, our church, at Community of Grace. We must not build our, our worship on uh, the opinions, the doctrines, the traditions of man. You know, it's easy for a church that's not governed by the Word of God to, uh, uh, to be governed by the opinions and preferences of the leadership or by habits or traditions. And man's ideas are never an adequate replacement for the wisdom of God that is revealed in the Word of God. Uh, the opinions of man, traditions of men, cannot provide lasting change. Uh, the Word of God convicts of sin. The Word of God converts. Uh, the Word of our God conforms us to the image of Jesus. And if we try to do through human ideas or human traditions, human practices, what only God can do through His Word, then we will fail. Uh, we will only produce stress and frustration and, uh, and, and find that traditions of men, the opinions of men, the preferences of men, the habits of men, the practices of our neighbors cannot produce lasting change. And so we will be frustrated. And uh, uh, so we can't allow human opinion, human traditions to replace the Word of God in our worship. We also can't allow chasing a feeling to replace a Bible. You know, and so you don't have the Bible, what do you do? You do what feels right, what feels good, what makes you comfortable. You know, we as humans, we want to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. And so if we don't have the standard of the Word of God, we might just start doing what feels good to us. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, you, you see that in churches that relate. Uh, neglect the Word of God or are chasing after a feeling, an experience. A worship service can become a, a show. A good speaker or a good musician can know how to work a crowd and to generate a certain feeling, a certain emotion. And uh, if we don't allow the Bible to be the center of what we believe and what we practice, we can allow, uh, uh, we, we can be influenced by how we feel about a certain issue or a certain event or a certain practice. We go with our feeling. Uh, we can pursue what makes us feel good and we can avoid what makes us feel bad. And of course, emotion itself is not a bad thing. Emotion was created by God, given to us by God. And emotion is a way that we can uh, express our love and adoration to God. Emotion is also a way that we can experience conviction and brokenness over our sin. And so emotion in itself is not a bad thing. It's a gift from God, a, a good gift from God uh, that enables us to, to love Him, love our neighbor, hate our sin. Those are all good things. But if we make emotion central, we can weaken the church and weaken our reliance upon the Word of God. Because God's Word is profitable for doctrine it's also profitable for what reproof rebuke correction training discipline and righteousness and sometimes reproof and correction 
doesn't necessarily feel good. <laughs> if we're seeking a good feeling, we might miss the reproof, the correction. God's Word sometimes is like a pruning knife. And a pruning knife probably doesn't feel good, but it's necessary for growth. Uh, sometimes the Word of God is like a refining fire. Being on the refining fire does not feel good, but it's necessary for spiritual growth and maturity and purity. And so sometimes if, we, if we're just going after what feels good, instead of the Word of God, we might miss things that don't feel good but are essential to our growth and our holiness and our maturity and even our life. And so the Word of God must be central. We can't go by the opinions of men. We can't go by what makes us feel good or our preferences. And uh, number three, we can't allow political or social action to replace the Bible. Some churches focus on political action or social action instead of the Bible. Now, please don't understand me. I don't believe, uh, don't misunderstand me. Please do understand me. <laughs> uh, I don't believe we should remove ourselves from the political process. As, as Christians, Christian citizens, we should exercise, you know, we exercise important responsibilities. We are Christian citizens who have the privilege of living in a democratic republic where we are able to educate ourselves on the issues and vote, speak with our voice, and petition our government. And, and so we, we have important responsibilities as Christians. Christian citizens living in a democratic republic. And many of the issues of the day are close to our hearts. And the values, the morals, the principles that we consider to be right and righteous are under attack. And we long to see our nation turn back to the biblical standard. And as we long to see repentance and to see our nation return to the biblical standard of uh, life and marriage and... and uh, and so many different issues, righteousness and justice, we might be tempted to put our trust in the political process. If we can just elect the right president, if the right party has control of Congress, if right-minded justices are appointed to the Supreme Court, it, it, our hope is in the political process. We've got to get the right leaders Make the right laws. We cannot allow that to be the source of our hope. And then, and then if, if that doesn't work, if we can't get the right, the right president, the right party in charge of Congress, the right kind of judges on the Supreme Court, well then we need to take to the street. Demonstrate, protest, boycott, blockade any business that does not do things our way. We must guard against political and social activism. We cannot allow political involvement or social activism to replace the Word of God in our church. Faith in Christ is not a political force, and the church is not to be a political action committee. If we put our faith in the political system, political or social action, that we're failing to trust in the sovereignty of God. Judah looked to Assyria and Egypt to protect them instead of looking to God and His sovereignty. And they paid dearly, 
hoping that Assyria and Egypt would be able to keep the Babylonians away. And so if we put our faith in, tr- in political action, political social action, then we're not trusting in the sovereignty of God. And also if we put our faith in political or social action, we can create a false sense of morality. You know, if we, if we make laws that enforce biblical morality, uh, then we can avoid the most important need people have. If people simply live moral lives because they're afraid of going to jail, that's not the same thing as turning from sin and putting your trust in Jesus Christ and being changed by the Holy Spirit and by living a right and moral life because you desire to be pleasing to God. That's people's greatest need is to turn from sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. They need to be made alive by Jesus and turn to Him in repentance and faith. And so just passing laws that enforce morality can deflect away from speaking to people about their greatest need. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation by God's grace, not by cleaning up your act or living a moral life. And so lasting change does not come from making laws. Lasting change comes from repentance and faith. And so we can't allow political and social action to replace the Word of God in our churches. And if we put our faith in political or social action, we can gain the reputation of being rabble-rousing malcontents, and we can foster hostility to the unbelievers that we're trying to reach. Political activism can alienate us from those that we need to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to also remember that the culture and the government are not our enemy. They're our mission field. It's wrong to blame our country's moral decline on political parties, conspiracies, or a biased media. And we should not be surprised when sinners act like sinners. They're blinded by the powers of darkness. Our enemy is not people. Our enemy is the powers of darkness that have blinded them so that they have no spiritual discernment. And uh, uh, we can't expect the government to bring about the righteousness and justice that only God can bring. can't look to the government to uphold a biblical standard of living We must do it through a consistent, bold proclamation of the Word of God and by living our lives according to the Word of God and not political or social action. We are indeed in a battle, but it's not a political battle. It's a spiritual battle. We are in a battle, a clash of spiritual kingdoms, and we must fight with the spiritual weapons of the Word of God. God's truth. And so we see our times are a lot like the times of Zephaniah. They lost the Word of God. They were going after tradition and human opinions and human preferences, doing what made them feel good and avoiding what made them feel bad and uh, putting their faith in political action, having the right people in charge. And so, uh, if we fail to have God's Word at the center, there, there are four significant problems that we can anticipate. 
Number one, if we fail to have the Word of God at the center of what we do, we will lose a healthy fear of the Lord. There's an unbreakable relationship between a healthy fear and reverence of God and a right understanding of His Word. And the people in Zephaniah's day did not fear the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, The people are settled in complacency. They say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. God's not going to do anything to help us, not going to do anything to hurt us. Uh, they, they don't have a healthy fear of the Lord because they were trying to worship Him without being informed by the Word of God. Number two, we'll lose the ability to discern the will of the Lord. If we don't have the Word of God at the center, we will lose the ability to discern the will of the Lord. The people in Zephaniah's day were people who had turned back from following the Lord, did not seek Him, did not inquire of Him. Chapter 1, verse 6. Number three, if we don't have the Word of God at center, we run the danger of losing the gospel. We can put our, our hope in something that cannot save. If we seek to get along with our culture, we can deceive ourselves to think that salvation is the avoidance of pain and, uh, or the finding of pleasure. Or we'll seek to bring about change through something that cannot bring lasting change. Uh, we'll, we can lose the gospel and forget that it's only Jesus, only faith in Jesus that brings real, true, lasting change and that brings salvation. And that true salvation may result in discomfort in this world because this is enemy territory. And we might not always be comfortable and at peace and at ease because when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we declare war on the world and the culture and Satan who uh, controls it and Satan fights back. So we run the risk of losing the gospel. Number four, we can lose our lampstand. Church will die. The church does not build on the Word of God, will die and experience God's judgment. Zephaniah, the Lord says to Zephaniah, I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole land shall be devoured by the fire of His jealousy, for He will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. And so God's people were trying to worship God without the Word of God. And as a result, they'd lost the fear of the Lord. They'd lost the ability to discern the Lord's will. They'd lost the ability, uh, they, they'd lost the gospel. They weren't putting their trust in the only one who can truly save. And ultimately, they lost it all. They lost the land. But God is faithful. And God preserved a faithful remnant through the line of David. And ultimately, He brought His Son, Jesus, into the world to experience the wrath that we deserve. He died on the cross and God raised Him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted. And that's the gospel that Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. Human tradition doesn't save. Good works don't save. The government can't save. Jesus saves. And He calls us to trust in Him 
and come to Him in repentance and faith and experience new life and lasting change. Josiah uh, began his reign in a, a world a lot like the one we live in. And Zephaniah preached, and he calls, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld this justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. All right. Questions about Zephaniah 1.1? Well, thank you. <laughs> Take that. Good text. Zephaniah 1.1. All right. Any thoughts, questions, comments? All right. Well, God, we're so thankful for Your Word and Lord, we're thankful that it is uh, living. And that the message you spoke in the day of Josiah is just as true today as it was then. The message you spoke to them is for us. And that we can learn from your actions in those days. And Lord, we, I thank you for a church that values your word and that demands that Your Word be studied and faithfully preached. And Lord, I pray that You would help us not just in the proclamation of Your Word, but in the practice of Your Word. And Lord, that we would have Your Word as the center of everything that we believe and everything that we do and everything that we practice. And so Lord, we need your spirit to help us understand and rightly interpret and apply your word to our circumstance, our situation. Lord, guard us from tradition, guard us from feeling, and guard us from the temptation to fight spiritual battles with material weapons. Help us to trust in your sovereignty and in your word, your gospel. And Lord, help us to be faithful, proclaiming salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, knowing that only Jesus can bring lasting change. Only Jesus can bring victory. Only Jesus can bring true morality and righteousness and justice and peace. Lord, help us not to lose sight of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you grant us opportunity to, to speak it. Find us faithful. And by your grace, make it fruitful. Add to our number those that are being saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.